Welcome to Season 2 of Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with co-hosts, New York Times best-selling authors and renowned investigative journalists, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, the stunning conclusion of Animal, the rise and fall of the mob's most feared assassin, chronicled in Casey's classic true crime novel. Before there was Whitey Bulger, there was Joe the Animal Barboza. Casey and Dave give you the inside story of the first man ever placed into the witness protection program and one of the most important organized crime cases in American history. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. The Mafia had just sent Joe the Animal Barboza a terrifying message. If we can't get to you, we'll hurt those close to you. After a car bombing that nearly destroyed a small neighborhood, Barboza's lawyer, John Fitzgerald, was rushed to a nearby hospital where he'd spend six hours on the operating table. He was given 12 pints of blood, but surgeons couldn't save the man's right leg that had to be amputated three inches below the knee. The lawyer also suffered serious burns to his face and neck, but he was still alive, just barely. An explosives expert from the state fire marshal's office later determined that two large sticks of dynamite, three inches thick, 16 inches long, and weighing 10 pounds in total, had been wired to the ignition. FBI agent H. Paul Rico and his partner Dennis Condon drove to the hospital where Fitzgerald's family was sitting in vigil. Privately, Rico wished that the lawyer would die on the operating table. For Rico, it was a case of sacrificing one for the greater good of many. After all, he knew that Fitzgerald was being targeted for assassination, but he didn't lift a finger to stop it. The bombers were friends of Barboza's, now turned enemies. Francis Cadillac, Frank Salemi, and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy, who just happened to be a top echelon informant for the FBI. But the attack on Fitzgerald was carried out in an effort to intimidate Joe Barboza and prevent him from testifying against Mafia godfather Raymond Patriarca. But it had the opposite effect on the animal. The bombing only strengthened his resolve to bring Patriarca down. Barboza's attitude was this. If I can't get that motherfucker with my bare hands, I'll get him with my mouth. The trial for Raymond Patriarca and his co-defendants, Henry Tamelio and another gangster named Ronnie Cassesso, began in early March 1968 in Boston. On the morning of Barboza's scheduled testimony, as many as five mafia hitmen were positioned outside the courthouse with orders to kill the animal before he made his way inside the building. One assassin, tucked away on top of a nearby office building, covered the courthouse steps with a sniper rifle. Another killer tried to slip into the courthouse disguised as a police officer. A member of Barboza's protective service had discovered 500 pounds of nitroglycerin that the mob had planned to use to blow up his security convoy. But U.S. Marshal John Partington had them all fooled. He had smuggled Barboza into the building under the cover of night, three full days before his testimony was about to begin. Sensing impending danger, the marshal had Barboza transported by helicopter from a secure estate in the fishing village of Gloucester, Massachusetts, to the famous Hat Shell, where the Boston Pops performed every 4th of July. To avoid unwanted fireworks, 
Partington surrounded Barboza with eight heavily armed marshals during the short walk from the helicopter to the armored van. The U.S. District Courthouse resembled a military barracks with bomb-sniffing dogs patrolling every floor. Barboza and Partington slept on cots in a basement storeroom that had been reinforced with steel plates, waiting patiently for their names to be called. Patriarca was on trial for ordering the murder of an independent dice game operator named Willie Marfio, who'd been shooting his mouth off and told the boss to go shit in his hat. As an unindicted co-conspirator to murder, Barboza told the jury that he had been recruited by the mob boss to whack out Marfio. Patriarca wanted him killed, the animal told the court. There were a lot of discussions about how we were going to do this. They suggested we use a meat truck and wear white coats to look like delivery men. We'd use a dolly and walk into the place where he hung out. Marfio got whacked and basically everything that Barboza said on the witness stand was true. The jury was handed the case on the fourth day of trial. The animal was sent back to his storage room to await the verdict. If Barboza couldn't send Patriarca to prison, he had no doubt that the FBI would feed him to the wolves. But the verdict was guilty on all counts. The animal raised his beefy arms over his head like he'd just won the heavyweight title. We did it, he yelled. We did it. The Portuguese hitman from New Bedford, Massachusetts, had beaten the mafia at its own crooked game. But he still had a few more scores to settle. John Partington handed him a marshal's uniform and told him to put it on. He had to keep Joe alive for trial number three, and deception was still the key. Barboza changed out of his clothes and was handed a rifle. Unloaded, of course. You pretend to guard one of the real guards who will pretend to be you, Partington told him. All right, Barboza, you asshole. Keep moving, the animal said as he pushed his decoy along. At a sentencing, Raymond Patriarca, the boss of all bosses in the New England Mafia, was handed five years in prison. This would mark the beginning of the end of the New England mob as we knew it. The Patriarca verdict was a watershed moment in the federal government's war on organized crime. For the first time in history, a major mafia figure had been taken down by the testimony of one of his own men. Barboza was on a roll now. Next was the Teddy Deegan trial. This time, the animal in the FBI selected six innocent men to blame for the murder that Barboza had orchestrated himself. He'd pinned the murders on Henry Tomelio, Ronnie Cassesso, Roy French, Louis Greco, Peter Lamoni, and Joe Salvati. They were a collection of made mafia members and associates, but all were completely innocent of the murder that was carried out by Barboza and Stephen Fleming's psychotic brother, Vinnie the Bear, back in 1965. And the FBI knew it. J. Edgar Hoover himself knew it. But these men were served up, and based on Barboza's bullshit testimony, each was found guilty. Four men were sentenced to death, and two others were given life sentences. J. Edgar Hoover praised FBI agents H. Paul Rico and his partner Dennis Condon for their work. To thank Barboza, he was offered a chance to disappear with his family. 
the animal was the first man ever placed in the newly formed Federal Witness Security Program, WITSEC. As if the story wasn't crazy enough, it gets even crazier now. Where could Barboza go without the mob finding him? Barboza wanted to go to Australia, but Hoover nixed the plan in favor of Northern California. They chose the sleepy town of Santa Rosa, California. With a new name, Joe Bentley, the animal was given a small place to live, and his wife and daughter were given elocution lessons to erase their thick Boston accents. Joe found work as a cook, but he missed the action. What the feds had not realized was that his nickname was still The Animal. Soon, Barboza found himself back in trouble. He even put out an olive branch to his gangster buddies back home, saying that he'd recant his testimony for cash. Barboza fell in with a small-time hood named Ricky Clay Wilson, who was trying to move stolen securities, stocks, and bonds. One night, after meeting up with Wilson, Barboza left his address book behind at a bar. Wilson picked it up and was startled to find contact numbers for the FBI, U.S. Marshals, and the Justice Department. He then tried to lure Barboza to a wooded area where he'd confront him and kill him. But Ricky Clay Wilson had no idea who he was fucking with. Listen, you fucking snitch. I heard about those guys you put on death row back east, Wilson shouted at Barboza. He then reached for a gun from his waistband. Barboza pounced on Wilson and wrestled him to the ground. The animal snatched the gun out of the man's hand and jammed it against his skull. Wilson made another move, reaching for a gun he had hidden in his boot. Seeing this, Barboza fired twice. One bullet tore through Wilson's left eye. The other traveled through his temple. Barboza then dragged Wilson's body deep into the bushes and dug a shallow grave. The story should have ended there, but there were witnesses. Two young women would come along for the ride. It may have been a disastrous oversight, or it may have been the fact that Barboza had never hurt a woman before. Either way, the animal let the girls live to tell their tale. Word about Barboza's involvement in the Wilson murder soon made its way to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department. But the FBI was close behind and tried to prevent investigators from tying their star witness to the crime. Assistant District Attorney Ed Cameron couldn't tell the good guys from the bad guys. When he flew to Boston to interview Barboza's old associates, his hotel room was broken into and his files were stolen. Cameron was convinced that it was the work of the FBI. Barboza was charged with the murder of Ricky Clay Wilson and put on trial in California in October 1971. Amazingly, both H. Paul Rico and Dennis Condon testified for the defense. Let me repeat, the FBI testified for the defense, supporting Barboza's claim that he killed Wilson in self-defense. Assistant DA Ed Cameron could not believe it. We had a pretty good capital murder case, he told reporters in frustration. We got to the end and we're having FBI agents suddenly appear as character witnesses for the killer. They damaged our case to the point where we didn't think the jury would convict in a first-degree murder case. On December 13, 1971, Joe the Animal Barboza entered a guilty plea to a charge of second-degree murder, meaning that he'd only served five years behind bars. 
Barboza and the FBI had won again. While in prison, Barboza offered to testify for the government again, this time for Florida Congressman Claude Pepper's Select Committee on Crime. Dressed in a tracksuit, wraparound sunglasses, and with a cigarette dangling from his lips, Barboza told the committee that his former boss, Raymond Patriarca, had invested $215,000 in a horse racing track in Massachusetts. Patriarca's alleged partner in the deal was none other than Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board. Sinatra didn't take the accusations lightly and was willing to testify himself. He marched into the Cannon House Building's caucus room. He was waving a newspaper over his head with the blazing headline, Witness Links Sinatra to Mafia Figure. That's charming, isn't it? Sinatra said angrily. I'm asking someone to be fair about it. How do you repair the damage done to me by this bum? Barboza went off at the mouth, and I resent it. Sinatra denied knowing Raymond Patriarca. The committee used the opportunity to press the legendary crooner on ties to other notorious mob figures, including Charles Lucky Luciano. I was introduced to Mr. Luciano by a newspaper man named Nate Gross from Chicago. Was that in Havana? Or was in it? Havana. Yes, in Havana. And obviously, I knew who Mr. Luciano was because I'd read enough about him. Everybody else did. But that was the extent of my knowledge of Mr. Luciano. Sinatra was combative with the committee. One congressman whispered to another, Who does he think he is? He must think he's Frank Sinatra, the other lawmaker replied. Barboza spent the rest of his time in prison working on his memoir. At one point, Truman Capote was attached to write it. He also spent a lot of time planning for his life after jail. Barboza considered going back to Boston and waging his own war with anyone who was left in the New England mob, including underboss Jerry Angiulo. Killing the animal was still a top priority for the Mafia. La Cosa Nostra had placed a $100,000 bounty on his head. Jerry Angiulo reviled Barboza, but he also had much to thank him for. Angelo had filled the power vacuum left by Raymond Patriarca after the boss was sent off to prison. In September 1975, Boston FBI agents sent word to their counterparts in San Francisco that Angelo had dispatched two hitmen to the Bay Area to find out when and where Barboza would be paroled, and then set him up for the kill. The FBI also warned that Angelo's men were planning for a public execution. Barboza was quietly paroled from the Sierra Conservation Camp in California after serving four years for the murder of Ricky Clay Wilson. His family had abandoned him, and he was given a new name, Joseph Donati. Barboza believed that gangsters in San Francisco were weak and primed for the taking. It wouldn't take him long to establish his bloody control over Northern California. Barboza shared his dreams with a friend who shared them with a man at the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco. That man's name was J.R. Russo. J.R. Russo was a legendary killer for the Boston mob. Jerry and Julo called him a fucking genius with a carbine. Russo was a strange dude, too. He liked to wear women's dresses around the North End. He said it was a disguise to trick the cops, but other mobsters wondered. But if they had something to say, no one dared say it to Russo's face. On the morning of February 11, 1976, Barboza borrowed his friend's car to run some errands. 
That friend tipped off J.R. Russo, who caught up with the animal on Moraga Street in San Francisco. As Barboza placed a can of Spam and other groceries into the car, he noticed a white van barreling down the street. The sliding door of the van pulled open, and J.R. Russo, with a stocking covering his face, leaned out with the carbine pointed directly at Barboza's chest. The first bullet missed Barboza and ripped through the side of the car. The next blast struck him squarely in the chest, lifting him off his feet. Barboza fell to the ground next to the board vehicle as the van sped away. Barboza spit blood. This time, it was his own. He closed his eyes for the last time. The animal was dead. Barboza's body was eventually shipped home for burial in his native New Bedford. You're one tough son of a bitch, his brother Donnie said, staring over the casket. You always told me how this would end. At least you're at peace now. The priest asked Donnie whether the family wanted the eulogy delivered in English. No, father. Please deliver it in Portuguese, Donnie said proudly. My brother was Portuguese. But Joe Barboza's ghost lived on. 25 years after the animal was gunned down in San Francisco, his secrets, and those of the FBI, finally came to light in the nation's capital. That's when the House Committee on Government Reform launched an investigation into the FBI's handling of controversial informants. At center stage was Joe Barboza in the Teddy Deegan murder case, which sent several men to prison for a crime they did not commit. Documents surfaced showing that J. Edgar Hoover had allowed it to happen. One of the wrongly convicted men, Joe Salvati, spent 30 years in prison before his sentence was finally commuted. Others died in jail. Although Barboza was long dead, his FBI handler, H. Paul Rico, was still alive to face the music. He was ordered to testify before Congress and was asked if he had any remorse for what he had done. A dramatic event unfolded today at H. Paul Rico's hearing when questioned by Republican Congressman Christopher Shays about having any regrets about his role. Rico stared back and scoffed, what do you want, tears? Rico would die soon after his testimony, but not before being formally charged with helping another of his informants, James Whitey Bulger, pull off a gangland hit of a Tulsa, Oklahoma businessman. The case became a huge embarrassment to the Justice Department, and there was a formal request to pull J. Edgar Hoover's name off of FBI headquarters. Joe Salvati, Peter Lamoni, and the relatives of the other wrongly convicted men sued the U.S. Justice Department and were awarded $107 million. It's the largest payout of its kind in American history. The government quickly appealed, but finally gave up the fight in 2010. Each of the men and their families received checks for $33 million, including two million bucks of accumulated interest while the case was on appeal. Who says crime doesn't pay? (laughs) 
Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. Produced and edited by Mike Joshua. Studio space provided by WorkLocalMA.com. Original music by Chris Spagone. For more from the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit MudhouseMedia.com. And for the latest on their podcasts and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, visit FortPointMedia.com. <laughs>